Greetings, this is Douglas Skimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. On today's podcast, I'm handing over the reins of the podcast to Kristen Sheffield, my colleague and fellow portfolio specialist. While I work with our fixed income strategies, Kristen is focused on Diamond Hill's equity strategies, specifically small, SMID, and mid-cap strategies. She's been with the firm since 2014 and prior to that worked as the Director of Investment Operations at Wealthstone here in Columbus, Ohio. Kristen will be joined today by Chris Welsh and Aaron Monroe, co-portfolio managers on our small cap strategy. Kristen will address a variety of topics with Aaron and Chris, including their starts in investing, reflections on their first year at the helm of the small cap strategy, and how they think about portfolio construction and positioning. Thank you and enjoy. Chris, Aaron, thanks for joining me today. Uh, Before we dive into talking specifically about small cap, uh, one of the topics we've heard discussed on the podcast before, and I think can be particularly interesting to our uh, clients and listeners, you know, is how people got started in investing. So can you tell us kind of what piqued your interest in intrinsic value investing? Yeah, well, I uh, first developed an interest in investing in my mid-20s before I really had any meaningful savings to invest. My brother was also learning about investing at the same time, and we talked about a lot of information and uh, you know, a lot of different ideas. He set up a brokerage account with $5,000 that I could invest for six months, saying that we'd split any gains, and he'd cover the losses at the end of that time. He's a nice guy. <laughs> uh, I read about a lot of stuff and ran through a few different investing philosophies, but when I came across long-term intrinsic value investing, that seemed like not only a very sensible and prudent approach, but it really was also a perfect fit for my personality and how I live my life. So I stuck with it, and eventually, not long after that, I got my first job working uh, with Chuck Bath at a uh, prior company here in Columbus. Yeah, so for me, uh, it's kind of dates back to college. I was in the process of reading The Intelligent Investor, which I think most people who follow this philosophy have probably uh, read or are familiar with. Uh, and it happened to coincide with actually Diamond Hill was doing a presentation uh, to the Undergraduate Finance Association at Ohio State on the Graham and Dodd super investors. And really it made sense. You know, I, as I reflect on it, you know, from my childhood, my parents were both fairly frugal individuals. I recall going to the grocery store with my mother and if the butter that was on sale wasn't there, she just wouldn't buy butter because that was what the value was. So therefore, for me, it just it's one of these things that I think for a lot of people, um, this component of purchasing something of value for less than what you generally think it, it's worth, it really resonates right out of the gate. So it's kind of in your DNA. Exactly. And, and Chris, did your brother have to cover losses or? Um, there, there were some modest losses, <laughs> but, but again, that was while we were still experimenting with different strategies. So once we figured it out, then results started getting better. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Aaron, you mentioned uh, Graham, and I think one of the interesting things about intrinsic value is it's really, you know, kind of a spectrum. At the, at the one end, you have you know, kind of the cigarette butts, as uh, Graham described them, something that just has, you know, one or two puffs left in them, uh, cheap businesses. And on the other end, you have kind of the high-quality compounders. Where would you say each of you kind of fall on that spectrum in terms of preferences, and has it maybe changed at all uh, over time? Yeah, well, I, I've definitely changed on that question over time. 
I started out being more focused on cheap absolute valuation. And then working with Chuck, I looked at Chuck's results. Uh, and then I looked at my own results as I started managing portfolios. And what I found was my most common mistake was selling fundamentally strong companies with modestly above average valuations way too early. And I saw Chuck have four or five 10 baggers, stocks that return more than 10 times uh, from the uh, initial investment. And I'd say I've really learned to appreciate the potential for the high quality compounders, but I still have a bit of a gravitational pull to uh, stocks that just look too darn cheap. And uh, one way that I try to manage that is by limiting the position size for the two cheap stocks, maybe to one, one and a half percent. That way, if they do turn out to be value traps, they don't cause too much damage. But we've really made some good money on those types of stocks at, at points in the past, so I don't want to completely write off that category. Yeah, I guess for myself, kind of the way I think about it is, as investors, I, th I think it's imperative that we um, have clarity of thought and are honest with our personal dispositions and where our personal strengths or weaknesses may be. I think what history has told me is that I'm not necessarily that great at timing when to buy a company or when to exit a position, but that I can add value in being patient in my business or industry analysis. And I think that just kind of lends itself better to kind of being on the kind of higher quality uh, portion of that spectrum. Time is on your side, kind of focusing on the long term hopefully put the kind of inherent components of a business um, and your patience to be uh, in your favor. So let's jump in uh, to talking about small cap. You know, it's been one year since you two stepped up and assumed the uh, co-PM roles on the small cap strategy. And as you reflect on that first year, kind of how have things gone, anything that surprised you? Yeah, well, I think things have gone very smoothly. Of course, Aaron and I worked together for many years before becoming co-PMs, uh, but managing a portfolio together is really a whole different level of collaboration. And there have been a couple of things that I would say have been especially pleasing for me. First, I think our personal sort of flavors of intrinsic value investing have been very compatible and well-aligned. Uh, so from a philosophy standpoint, I feel like we're well-matched at a detailed level. Uh, and that helps a lot when you're co-managing with someone. Also, Aaron's prior experience at Diamond Hill has focused mostly on the consumer discretionary sector. He's been an analyst here for more than 10 years. He, he was an assistant on small cap for a couple of years before we became co-managers, but I thought it might take him a few quarters to uh, ramp up on other market sectors. And I've been really pleased that from the beginning, He's fully participated in all the discussions and the analysis of, of all the companies that we've looked at, and he's added value even in areas where uh, he's not spent a huge amount of time in the past. Good. Sounds like you know, things are going well, and I think uh, in that vein, you know, there's a number of different ways you can kind of set up a uh, co-PM you know, decision-making rights and share responsibilities. So you know, how does that work between the two of you, and what happens if there's any sort of disagreement? So Chris and I uh, agree to make all the decisions within the portfolio collaboratively. We structurally meet once a week and are in consistent communication throughout the week 
to, about all of the positions. We have kind of our areas of uh, focus, if you will, uh, mine being consumer, uh, real estate, and the what we call time here, kind of the industrials and energy materials side, and Chris being technology, healthcare, and the rest of the financials. <clears throat> and that kind of comes into play where there might be a, a disagreement on position sizing or something along those lines, uh, in which you know, we kind of defer to that individual. You know, fortunately, it's been a year and uh, neither of us have utilized that kind of, uh, if you want to call it that card to say, no, I really think it should be this. Everything we've done, we've uh, talked through, come to an agreement. I think one kind of caveat to this is uh, in all uh, new positions within the portfolio, uh, Chris and I both will agree uh, to add those companies so that there aren't any positions within uh, the overall portfolio that one or the other of us disagrees with. So there's got to be consensus for a, a you know a new position to enter the portfolio. Can you give us some insight into maybe how that process works when you're considering a new idea and maybe walk us through a recent example? Yeah, sure. Uh, we bought Wesco, which is an, an industrial electrical distributor, in the second quarter last year and then added to the position at lower prices in August. And we had discussions with Greg Sumner, the analyst who covers the stock, about his investment thesis, the key drivers, including revenue growth, profit margins, competitive threats from Amazon, leverage, the company's uh, capital allocation priorities. After a lot of research and discussion, we felt like Wesco offered enough value-added services to their customers to withstand any threat from Amazon. And we were also comfortable that they could withstand any pain from an economic downturn because of their counter-cyclical cash flows as a distributor. That's, that's certainly something we think about a lot as a company's ability to withstand pain. Uh, at the same time, investors uh, started uh, being concerned about tariffs and increasing probability recession, and that drove the stock valuation low enough that it started to look attractive to us, so we started buying the stock. So when you you know are buying a stock or you know starting a new position, another thing that goes into that is you know how you size that uh, position. So can you talk about you know how you think about position sizing, and is there any sort of minimum uh, requirement you know for a position in the portfolio? Uh, there is a minimum, but I, I guess maybe first the, the kind of the way I think we we think about the portfolio construction is. You analyze each business uh, in its entirety as where it fits within an industry, uh, what's its competitive advantage, the durability of that competitive advantage, uh, the liquidity of the stock itself. And within that, you, you kind of come out to what you think might be an, an inherent position size for this business. And then you filter that through kind of the other levels of margin of safety in, in that what is the true discount to intrinsic value and what other cash flows do you have represented in the portfolio and how this may fit in there and and then you kind of size it within that kind of inherent uh position size range uh, you know part of the component of chris and i working together is that we want to ensure that we are uh, running a high conviction portfolio and, and therefore within that to your you know question of minimum position size, we both agreed that we felt like 50 basis points was the minimum position size that uh, we wanted to implement within the portfolio. And therefore, after reviewing that various construct of kind of the 
understand where this business fits in within its industry. If we don't feel comfortable establishing a 50 basis point position, we'll pass on on that kind of business or opportunity, you could say. So you talked about, you know, wanting to have a high conviction uh, portfolio. I think one of the things kind of related to that and, and changes that we've seen since you've taken over management of the portfolio in February of last year is that we've seen a meaningful reduction uh, in the cash level of the portfolio. Uh, so what's kind of your philosophy on cash? And is there a typical uh, range we might expect to see uh, in terms of cash in the portfolio? So, yeah, yeah I, I think this goes back to the being intellectually honest with yourself. And with that and with kind of the, the thought of uh, timing, uh, I think that also includes cash. Uh, we don't want to be highly opportunistic with our cash position. Uh, we would prefer to own a high quality business that we think can compound ours or our client's wealth uh, at a reasonable pace, high single digit, low double digit pace. Uh, and therefore, you know, uh, we tend to see cash being in that mid single digit, that kind of four to 6% range uh, most of the time. And, you know, and Chris has implemented kind of something similar within Smith and Mid in that he has a kind of self-imposed 10% cash limitation. And, and we're gonna utilize that as well within the small cap as that is the, the highest level that we would ever see, I think, cash getting to. You know, I think the other change we've seen kind of over the past year is kind of a reduction in the number of holdings. Um, you know, we took over the portfolio, there were 69 holdings. Now I've got, you know, 57 as of December 31st. Uh, how do you think about kind of concentration in the portfolio and you know, what's the kind of typical number of positions that you might expect or is there a range you might expect to see? Yeah, like, like I said before, uh, we want to run a high conviction portfolio. We don't want to dilute our best ideas. Uh, the stated range presently for the number of holdings is 50 to 80. Uh, I would expect us to be on the low side of that. Can you talk about uh, kind of the thought process that goes into constructing the portfolio and how you balance that kind of concentration versus uh, diversification? Yeah, well, our, our goal is to generate the best returns we can for clients while maintaining a diversified portfolio and limiting the risk of permanent loss of capital as much as reasonably possible. Diversification comes in a lot of different forms. We have official position size limits and limits on how big an industry or sector weight can get for the portfolio. But for example, during the financial crisis, you could have had a portfolio split between energy, materials, consumer discretionary, technology, financials, industrials. All the stocks could have been trading in an almost fully correlated way. So we build our portfolios using bottom-up analysis, but we use our experience to be aware of any unintended concentration of risk, things like exposure to economic cyclicality, uh, which was a big one during the financial crisis, or exposure to interest rate moves, or things, any other factor like that. Uh, within those official and sort of unofficial guidelines, we want to concentrate our investments in the most attractive opportunities. So that leads to the comments that, that Aaron has already made and the reduction in the number of holdings we've seen over the past year. So I think, you know, cash and the number of positions, these are kind of explicit things that you can see that have happened uh, to the portfolio over the past year. But I think one of the 
you know, more significant things that have happened in this kind of evolution is upgrading some of the quality uh, of the portfolio. So, you know, two-part question. Uh, when you talk about the quality of a business, kind of what are you looking for? What does that mean? Uh, and can you give, you know, any example uh, of maybe how you've upgraded the quality or how this has manifested in the strategy? I, I think when you talk about quality, you are talking about kind of that overall overview of the company what is the business, where are they positioned within the industry, um, what is the moat, how durable is that, what does the balance sheet look like, how stable are the cash flows. So uh, an example kind of that I've utilized has been uh, the transition from Avis Budget into uh, a company called Calmain. So in Avis, it was the situation where an industry had consolidated to roughly three players. And we felt that in the consolidation, there should be a more rational fleet management, better pricing power, and in turn, uh, stronger returns on invested capital. And really the antithesis is what occurred. The industry remained somewhat irrational, focused on market share, uh, fleet management was inconsistent, pricing was, uh, power was temporary. And all of this kind of operated from a corporate balance sheet that was levered to 4X, uh, net debt to EBITDA. So now if you take Calmain, this is a uh, the largest shell egg producer in the country uh, with very dominant uh, regional market shares. For instance, the uh, state of Florida, they produce every egg in the state of Florida. <clears throat> that business has a fair amount of cyclical shell egg exposure. Right now, we are currently kind of at the bottoms of a shell egg cycle in which most shell egg producers are actually losing money. But this company is actually built to withstand that and to make themselves better in the face of this cyclical challenge within the industry. So they have a significant long-term shareholder that owns about 50% of the company. It's run in a very long-term prudent fashion and the balance sheet is currently net cash. So they're able to make these investments into making their business better. And in the long run, we feel very comfortable owning a higher quality company like that, uh, that we think should do well if we're patient over a long period of time. So I saw a stat the other day that, uh, you know, 38% of companies in the Russell 2000 uh, don't currently make any money or they're non-earners. Uh, in addition, you know, you're talking about leverage. Uh, the small cap universe kind of tends to have, you know, higher debt to capital levels uh, when you compare it to large cap. You know, is it tougher to find those kind of quality businesses in small cap? You know, it seems like some of the type of franchises available up the cap spectrum, like a Microsoft or an Abbott Labs, you know, you don't have that uh, available in small cap. So does that kind of impact how you construct the portfolio? Well, yeah, and, and definitely uh, you kind of pointed out uh, technology and healthcare are a couple of sectors where the opportunity set is dramatically different in the small cap universe versus large cap. Many small cap uh, tech stocks are either cloud computing or other super high growth companies that trade at sky high valuations or their commodity part suppliers or distribution companies with really little in the way of economic moats. 
And similarly in healthcare, uh, many of the highly valued small cap biotech stocks, uh, they, they aren't forecast to have positive earnings for many years into the future. And then a lot on the other side, a lot of the facility-based healthcare stocks seem to be fairly commoditized relative to the competition. So we've been able to find a few stocks in each area that meet our criteria for favorable businesses, uh, selling at sufficiently attractive valuations. Uh, you know, I'd say at a higher level, uh, where we can find some companies in small cap, in sort of uh, uh, business niches in the small cap market that are leaders in those business niches. Uh, you know, those have been very attractive to us. Uh, we, we find fewer of those opportunities in small cap than we have in large cap, but that makes it more pleasing when we do identify those types of businesses and we tend to take larger positions. So you, you kind of hit on um, you know, some of the things you might look for in, in those larger uh, positions, and we've talked about portfolio construction, you know, wanting to have the most capital uh, behind, you know, the best opportunities, most attractive opportunities. W what does that look like kind of today? Where are you positioned in finding some of those top opportunities for the portfolio? We're all aware that the market has had an amazing run uh, over 10 years, uh, basically uh, almost straight up. Uh, in that, Chris and I you know, really believe that this is the time, not a time to kind of go down the quality spectrum that you're not getting paid to take that type of a business risk right now. So I think you can characterize that within the portfolio is you look at some of the top holdings you have a Live Nation or a Vail Resort, which I would classify as uh, businesses that would be uh, really challenging, if not impossible, to replicate. Or you have businesses, like I had mentioned earlier, like a Calmain or a Kirby, that I think is what I call maybe a quality cyclical or a business that has the capacity to suffer and has the ability to make themselves better and stronger in the bottom, the trough of their cycles. And then I think the other piece of that is the, call it niche financial businesses, uh, where you have uh, banks or insurance companies that really have a small focus on what they do and they do it very well, like a Sterling Financial or an NSTAR. So that's kind of the construct of most of the kind of higher conviction concentration of the portfolio. Uh, and then you sold in various opportunities that we see available here or there. So we've covered, uh, you know, a lot of different areas today uh, from how you became an interested in investing, uh, constructing the portfolio, what you guys are looking for in a business. So to wrap up, I'm going to uh, steal a page from Doug's book and ask if you can share something uh, interesting or unique that, you know, our clients and listeners might not know about you. Well, sure. Um, yeah, I drove a series of cheap used cars when I was younger, and I bought my first new car back in 2006 for less than $20,000. And after 13 years and 125,000 miles, I just put it down and replaced it. <laughs> so now I'm going to start working on achieving my twin goals of getting at least 10 years and at least 100,000 miles from the new one. So long-term in investing and long-term with your Absolutely. Cars. Aaron? Well, uh, you know, I, I think an interesting component maybe, some people might find it interesting, um, some people might think it's crazy, 
but I, I really kind of like to de deconstruct things and uh, get to the core components of what goes in them because I'm very cognizant of what I utilize in my life and what I consume from a food or nutrition perspective. So I've gone about kind of doing some various things from scratch, like made my own soap, made my own yogurt, do, you know, bread, pizza dough. Uh, I've brewed my own beer before. So just maybe you could say just stripping out the middleman. <laughs> Uh, anything that you've you know worked out pretty pretty well, or any favorites among those? Uh, I haven't hurt anybody with the soap or killed anybody with uh, the food, so <laughs> we've avoided botulism. Good. Um, so so far, it's been uh, it's been pretty good. See, I've, I tried brew my own beer once, and I'd say only a couple times, and maybe one time I could call a batch you know drinkable just out of principle, <laughs> but didn't have a ton of success. So. You know, thank you for joining me today, guys, and uh, thank you uh, to Doug for letting me uh, guest host here. I'll have to do it again sometime. Thanks, Casey. Appreciate This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.